Good morning. Let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. This morning we're giving our attention to verses 45 through 53. It is Memorial Day weekend, and what do we do? Memorial Day weekend. It's about remembering, remembering those who have fallen, protecting the freedom of this country. And interestingly enough, that is what we do every Sunday, right? Why is it that we gather Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday together? We gather to remember to remember the mighty acts of God in Christ Jesus. We gather every Sunday to remember the one who died upon a cross for our sins and who rose again. And if you think about it, we must do so constantly. First of all, we are a people who are prone to forget. We are prone to forget. So we must be here every Sunday to remember the mighty acts of God. And then on top of that, you add the fact that you look around the world and what do you see? You see war, senseless war in Ukraine. And then you come to Texas, Uvalde, Texas. And what do you see? Senseless killings. And so we realize that we must remember the one who is always, always faithful. And we must remind ourselves that if we are going to find any hope whatsoever, it cannot come from within the world. It must come from above. As Stephen looked his accusers in the eye in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, and as he knew that his very life was on the line in the face of hostility, injustice, and hatred, Stephen remembered he remembered, he remembered where his hope was. The leaders from his own Jewish tradition had become corrupt, hateful, prideful, and blinded to the truth. But Stephen's hope transcended all of that. So he simply entrusted himself to the one who is unmoved, the one who will never change the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus, the righteous one. Ultimately then, we are learning that Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7 before the Sanhedrin was not about Abraham, was not ultimately about Moses, was not ultimately about David, but about God's faithfulness expressed ultimately and supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, at the very center of our hope stands the man from Nazareth. And as such, Jesus stands at the very center of all redemptive history. At the end of the day, my brothers and sisters, we are not saved by Abraham. We are not saved by Moses or David. We are saved only and exclusively by the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And this matters to you and to me. Because the centrality of Jesus in all of human history reveals that our individual lives are not isolated from the saving purposes of God. 
Rather, our lives, your life and my life, they exist because they were created. Within the grand story of redemption, you must remember this. We were created to know and to love God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, your life is not an accident. My life is not an accident. Even accidents are not accidents. Everything has a purpose, and everything is meant to lead you to a greater and deeper faith and knowledge and love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing is random. You were made to know God in Christ. Our lives belong to this grand narrative of hope, reconciliation, forgiveness, and eternal life with Christ at the very center. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen recounts for us the historical steps God took to bring this plan to fulfillment. So what is the point? If you're following the notes, what's the point? It is all about Jesus. I'm sorry to break it to you. It's not about you. It is all about Jesus. And I will seek to expand on that truth this morning as we look at Stephen's words one last time. We find ourselves at the end of his speech, which goes from verse 45 through 53. But in order for us to see all of this within its proper flow, I will give you a Christ-centered summary of everything Stephen has said so far, culminating in David, Solomon, and the temple in verses 45 through 50, which will further reveal the glory of Jesus. So without further ado, here's a brief recap of Christ in the Old Testament. First, Jesus is the Abrahamic seed that blesses the nations. Jesus is the Abrahamic seed that blesses the nations. As we saw, Abraham was set apart by God so that he, along with his descendants, could show the world what it looks like to worship the true God and what it looks like to walk by faith. Abraham and his descendants were to be a light unto the nations. In you, God said to Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be what? Blessed. But as the New Testament makes clear, it is not Abraham himself, the one in whom the families of the earth are blessed, but in one of his descendants. And to this one descendant of Abraham, God promised to give what? All the nations of the world. As we read in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. Consider this, to the pre-incarnate Son, to the pre-incarnate Son, the Father says this in Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Consider this, having accomplished the work of redemption on the cross, Having been raised from the dead, it is the Son, now risen and glorified, who said to the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and get me what? What's already mine. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Why can the resurrected Jesus say that? 
Because according to Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, God had decreed that the nations would be his. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we find Jesus once again saying these words also to the disciples. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to what? The end of the earth. And what did the Father say to the Son in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8? Ask of me, and I will make the ends of the earth your possession. The multi-ethnic, multinational Abrahamic blessing is in and through Jesus Christ. And so Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with a few spiritual blessings, with a lot of spiritual blessings, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Abraham points us to Christ, but so does the Exodus under Moses, which is our next point. Jesus came to redeem his own people. Jesus came to redeem his own people. There are two things that I want you to consider with me. Notice, first, how God spoke of Abraham's descendants, as recorded in Acts chapter 7, verse 34. What did he say? I have surely seen the affliction of whose people? My people who are in Egypt. Whose people? God's people, my people, brothers and sisters, obviously only God can say to have a people who are his possession. But notice how Paul spoke of the work of Jesus. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says that Jesus, pay attention to this, gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for whose possession? His own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, who but God can say that he has a people who are his own possession? The answer is no one. Only God can make that claim. Moses was God's instrument to redeem his chosen people from the kingdom of Egypt. But Jesus, my brothers and sisters, is God himself coming down to redeem his chosen worldwide multi-ethnic people from the kingdom of sin, darkness, and Satan. Thus, Jesus can say that he has a people, his own possession. Consider this, my friends. Jesus can say the same thing Yahweh said in the Old Testament about Israel. Jesus can say the exact same thing Yahweh said in the Old Testament about Israel. They are my people. And now Jesus comes and says, I have come to redeem whose people? My possession. My possession. The difference, however, and the glory of the new covenant is that unlike the old, in the new, Jesus actually shed his blood the blood that could only be typified in the Old Testament. There is something remarkably, remarkably better in the new that the old cannot say. In the old, the prophets said, salvation is coming. In the new, the apostles said, salvation is 
here, brothers and sisters, in Jesus, God himself has come down for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? But there is more. The sign of circumcision given to Abraham also pointed forward to Christ and his word. Consider his word. Consider next how Jesus gives his people spiritual circumcision. Jesus gives his people spiritual circumcision. As we saw, God gave Abraham the covenant of physical circumcision, the circumcision of the flesh, and we talked about that in in more depth a few weeks ago. This was the sign that externally identified Abraham's descendants as God's elect, chosen, and unique people, called to be set apart. But the true call remained an impossibility for Israel. Remember what God said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. God said to Israel, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Undoubtedly, that type of circumcision was way beyond the human ability to perform. How in the world can you give yourself a new heart? You can't. It is like asking the Ethiopian to change the color of his skin. As Jeremiah 13, 23 says, it is only in and through Christ and by the Spirit of God that this is accomplished. Consider Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, as Paul speaks of the absolute sufficiency, perfection, glory, and deity of Christ. He then says, in him, meaning in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made... Without hands, there you go, you got it. Without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. What is this circumcision made without hands? It is the granting of new life. It is to be made alive by the power of the Spirit of God. Abraham could not do that. Physical circumcision could not do that. Only Christ can do that by the Spirit. But that new life is granted to us only and exclusively on the basis of the finished work of Jesus upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And now the exalted Jesus, as head of the new covenant, by his Spirit, he grants his people the sign of belonging to him. It used to be physical, fleshly circumcision. Now is the circumcision of the heart. We get a new heart. And This is how Jesus sets us apart, by a greater circumcision, the one that is made without hands. And that, my friend, no external ritual, no religious rite, and no priest can give. Only Jesus, by his Spirit, can give you a new heart. You cannot produce that yourself. And this, my friends, is grace. This is grace. Here's yet another reason why Jesus is the only hope for the world. Only he by virtue of his death and resurrection, has the power and authority to transform people from the inside out. Guns have never been the problem. Guns have never been the problem. Cain killed his own brother Abel with a rock. 
Soon we will see Stephen himself be killed with the exact same weapon. People have been destroying each other with knives and rocks and swords and spears and arrows, etc. For a long, long time, the problem is not the weapon. The problem is the darkened heart that leads the hand to pull the trigger. And no external reform, no baptism, no policy can correct that it is only Jesus who on the basis of his death and resurrection sends his spirit into the world to give dead sinners new life. It is only as we preach the gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus and his kingdom, that an evil, darkened heart can be made anew. Friends, let us never lose sight of the cure. Stephen did not lose sight of the cure because he understood the problem. Hence, read with me verse 51 of Acts, 50, uh, of Acts 7. What did he tell his audience? He called them, you uncircumcised in heart and ears. The stones were not the problem. The problem was dead hearts that were full of darkness. Only Jesus can bring true, lasting change. All of which leads us to yet three more reasons why the Lord Jesus is all we need. As revealed in Stephen's sermon, we're going to go through these three fast. Jesus is our prophet. Jesus is our prophet. And you know what the other two are, right? But first, Jesus is our prophet. As I said last week, Moses was not the last word from God. More prophets came after him. But the ultimate, the final, the supreme revelation of God came in the last prophet, the one Moses announced in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus Christ. He is our prophet, for he reveals the Father in himself, in his own person. He shows us the Father, something Moses could never have said about himself. As Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Only through Christ can we have true saving knowledge of God. So do you want to know God? It can only happen by faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. There is no other Way. Not only is he our prophet, Jesus is also our priest. Our priest. In Acts chapter 7, verses 40 and 41, Stephen recounts how Israel committed adultery by worshiping the golden calf. The original text from which Stephen quoted was Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. What Stephen did not mention, however, was how God forgave Israel of their idolatry. It says in Exodus 32, verse 11, that Moses interceded for Israel. And what did Moses say? In Exodus 32, verse 13, Moses came before God to intercede for the people of Israel, and he said this to God, God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants, and the Lord, the Bible says, relented. The Lord relented. Moses interceded for the people of Israel by reminding God of his own covenant with Abraham. So I ask you this, what do we do? What do we do when we sin? When we sin, 
and our guilt is heavy upon our hearts and our minds, we too can come to God in prayer and say what? God, remember Jesus, your servant. Remember the one who died for me. Jesus is our priest. He's the one who intercedes for us before the Father and grants us peace that comes from forgiveness. As you can see, the story of the Old Testament is moving forward progressively, unveiling the coming of the Son of God, all of which brings us to Christ's third and final office. And you know it. Jesus is our King. Jesus is our King. Verses 45 through 47 of Acts 7, I would say, are the climactic moment in Stephen's speech. I say that because central to the charge against Stephen was his understanding of what? This holy place, the temple. And by introducing David and Solomon, Stephen is taking us right into the heart of the charge against him. Why? Well, it was David who had the desire to build God a temple. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, I want to build God a temple. But it was Solomon who actually built the temple. As we get there, we need to understand that Stephen is about to get to his bottom line, his punchline, his point for everything he has been saying. But we must consider David's greater son, Jesus, the true king of God's people. Peter said, and if you want, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to read verses 12 and 13. But remember what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. He said that David died. His body was buried. And Peter said that his tomb was still among us, holding all of his remains. His body, David's body, decomposed. But consider what God said to David during his lifetime as he was the king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, God said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, meaning when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now consider the end of verse 13. He, who, not David, but one of David's offsprings, he shall build a house for my name. Who's speaking? God is speaking. To David, he, your descendant, will build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne or the throne of his kingdom for how long? A hundred years, two hundred years? Who can give me more? A thousand years? No, eternal. Eternal. Now, did you see what God said about David's offspring? What is the context? Remember the context. David wanted to build God a temple. He requested, God, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. The context is the construction of a temple. It is in this context that God says to David, one of your sons, one of your descendants actually will build me a house. He will build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. Brothers and sisters, that was not Solomon. For he too died and was buried. This was obviously, and Peter 
confirms this in Acts chapter 2. This was a prophecy about Jesus, for he's the one, the only one who died, was buried, and then rose again from the dead, never to see corruption. He never saw corruption. Not only that, but this son of David, whose throne endures forever, is also building a house for God, a temple. And so here is Stephen's bottom line the point of his speech. Since the accusation was primarily about Stephen's understanding of the temple, here's Stephen's resolution to the debate. Having said everything he said, here's Stephen's therefore, or his conclusion. What is the therefore? Something greater than the temple was needed. Something greater than the temple was needed. So, verse 49 and 50, let's read it together, Acts 7. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Now, let's turn to the original quote in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. It is imperative that we look at the quote in its entirety. There is a part in verse 2 that Stephen left out. And it feels as though he did it for the intended effect. It is very likely most, if not all, his audience would have known how Isaiah 62, verse 66, verse 2 ends. But sometimes what is left unsaid carries greater weight. So consider with me what God said in its original Old Testament context. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Here's the full quote. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And here's the part that Stephen left out in his speech in Acts 7. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Did you notice what that passage says? While the Lord himself was speaking about the inadequacy of any man-made dwelling place for him in that very context. All of a sudden, he speaks of people. The one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at his word. Why are those words there in verse 2? They don't seem to match the overall point of the passage. He's talking about a temple, the inadequacy of the temple. And all of a sudden, he wants to look down to the one who is contrite and humble and trembles at his word. Why are those words there? They don't seem to match the overall point. But of course, they do. Why? Because God dwells with his people, not in a physical structure. His covenant, beginning with Abraham, followed by Moses, and all the way to the kings, David and Solomon, his covenant has always been a matter of God committing, him, committing himself to his people. Even when the temple was finally built 
it proved to be inadequate to house God's divine omnipresence. Stephen was not against the temple, but he understood its purpose. It was temporary and it was insufficient, pointing to something much, much greater. And so when Jesus appeared, what did he say about himself in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6? Jesus said about himself, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What a statement. Something greater than the temple is here. Why is Jesus greater than Solomon's temple? Because Jesus is the one in whom God and sinners can finally meet in peace. Jesus is our meeting place where sinners can come to a holy God and find him and encounter him and meet him in peace. Even the temple, brothers and sisters, was ultimately about Jesus. How so? Well, Jesus, as he said to Peter, is the one who builds his what? Starts with a C, followed by an H. You, good job, good job. And what is the church? Well, the church is the dwelling place of God. Who is building the church? Jesus. And what did God say to David? Your son will build me a place. Consider what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, meaning the Father and I, will come to him and make our home. Our what? Our home with him. Where does God dwell? He dwells within the one who believes in the Son. Hence the words of Peter to his exile audience, which are recorded in 1 Peter 2, 5, where he said, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Or how about what Peter, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from? God. This is why Jesus could say to his disciples, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the same God who led Israel throughout their Old Testament history. He is, Jesus is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is the same God who led his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. He is the same God who filled the temple with his presence and his glory. But now, that God has assumed a human body. This is the glory of the gospel. The same God that led the Israelites in Old Testament history has now assumed a human body, lived, died, and rose again. And now humanity, which is represented in that God-man, has been restored to God, lifted up to the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies. While Solomon's temple could only represent the unapproachable, all-holy presence of God through earthly materials. Jesus has entered the true, heavenly, holy of holies, and he did so as a man. 
And now for the first time in all of human history, there is a man in heaven. There is a man in heaven with a body who can stand before the presence of God on behalf of his people, Jesus of Nazareth. He has removed the curse of sin. He satisfied the wrath of God. And in him, humanity has been redeemed. In Christ, God is now with us and we are with him. No Jesus, no access to God. According to John chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus is the eternal word that came and tabernacled. He tabernacled among us in the flesh. Jesus is God bringing his own presence down with us. According to both Peter and Paul, Jesus is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And the building that he is building is made out of people, redeemed, forgiven, justified, sanctified people, the church. Jesus is greater than the temple. And thus, the glory of this new temple, made out of living stones as opposed to inert stones, is much more superior to anything Solomon could ever have built. Solomon's temple was indeed, indeed beautiful. But what David's greater son, Jesus, is building far surpasses anything Solomon could ever do. And you and I, my brothers and sisters in Christ, are living stones in this glorious temple because of the spirit that now dwells in us, the spirit of Christ. So, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. The Jews got it wrong and fatally so. Here are Stephen's severe indictments upon Israel and its leaders. I believe I have four indictments that I want to show you. The first indictment, here are the reasons why they killed him. First, idolatry with regard to the temple. Idolatry with regard to the temple. Clearly, Solomon's temple was never meant to be a permanent nor sufficient dwelling place for God. The prophets, like Isaiah, said God does not dwell in physical temples or structures. But the Jews turned that holy place into an idol, an idol worth killing for. Second indictment, hatred with regard to the prophets. Do you see what Stephen did throughout the speech he basically said to his audience, the Jews, your own history speaks of your attitude toward the prophets. Your fathers rejected Moses himself. Don't be surprised, Stephen is saying, don't be surprised that you now find yourself rejecting the one Moses prophesied about, Jesus the righteous one. You have a history of rejecting your prophets. This is what you do. You reject the prophets. Number three, this third indictment, hypocrisy with regard to the law. They gave God's law outward reverence, but they failed to realize that its very purpose was to lead them to believe in God's promised salvation in Christ. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, that before faith came, we were held captive under the law. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Stephen's audience, they would have benefited from the Heidelberg 
Catechism, which in one section asks the following question, from where do you know your misery? And the answer is, out of the law of God. And then ask, can you keep the law perfectly? The answer is, not at all, for I am prone to hate God and neighbor. What was the intent of the law? What was the main purpose of the law? To show God's people their desperate need of grace. To show God's people their desperate need of grace. To make them long for the salvation that God would provide in Christ, the coming Messiah. Yet they took it as a badge of honor and as a tool for boasting. What do you think of the law? I vividly remember two interactions I had in California. One with two Mormon missionaries and the other with a Jehovah's Witness minister, as they would call him. In both cases, I applied the exact same evangelistic approach. I kept confronting them with God's law, the Ten Commandments, and the results were not pretty. They were not pretty. Have you ever seen, seen Mormons angry or Jehovah's Witness angry? Well, I saw them. I saw them in both cases. Both the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness became frustrated, even angry. And all I did was, let's go back to the Ten Commandments. Why? Because the law is meant to break us so that we might run to Christ for forgiveness and grace. That is the purpose of the law. It's not to show you that you're a good person. Because if you compare yourself to the law, you will come out thinking, I'm done. The law is meant to break us so that we might run to Christ for forgiveness and grace. And the final indictment, the heart of it all, rejection with regard to God. Stephen said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. The Jews had a history of rejecting the voice of the Lord. So I believe based on everything we have seen, both from the context and the speech itself, Stephen, in essence, in essence was telling them this. Here's his bottom line. By rejecting Jesus, the one the prophets announced, you rejected God himself. You rejected Yahweh. And that was the whole point of your Old Testament scriptures. The heart of it all was God saying, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And I will dwell with them. And so God was with Abraham. He was with Isaac. He was with Jacob. He was with Joseph. And then God was with Moses and with Joshua, even before there was a temple. And the same could be said of David and Solomon. The summary of it all could be this. You have been hiding behind an external wall of religiosity. But your hearts have always been far away from God. Your religion is dead. Your religion is dead. When God finally showed up, you killed him. Stephen uncovered their idolatry, their hatred, their hypocrisy, and their rejection of God himself. If they loved Moses, they would have loved Jesus. But more importantly, if they loved God, they would have loved Jesus. Because again, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. But they killed him 
These men looked good on the outside, but inside they were full of death along with its accompanying stench. Stephen exposed them for who they really were. Thankfully, in the middle of this seeming, seemingly hopeless situation, hope remains. So I want to finish with a few reminders we can gather from Stephen's wonderful speech. It all comes down to God's faithfulness and will be done. Next week, we will look at his actual martyrdom and what happened there. Five truths about God's faithfulness. First, it is divine. I know what you're thinking. Duh. All right. But before you look on that statement with disdain, remember that the Bible does make sure we know that God is not a man, that he should lie. Numbers 23, 19. This matters for it reminds us that God's faithfulness to us is not human-like. It is neither prone nor subject to change. God is faithful as God. As God. Second, it is sovereign. The faithfulness of God is not determined by historical events. Rather, God decrees all of history in order to put his faithfulness on display. You know what the history of the world is? The history of the world, the whole history of the world is just a stage where God can display his faithfulness in Christ. Brothers and sisters, God is still sovereign. His faithfulness does not depend on the politician or the lawmaker or the circumstances of the world, and this is great news. God sent forth his son during the time of Herod, just like Moses was born during the time of Pharaoh. Both of them were born under the sentence of death, but God is sovereign over all things. Third, and since it is divine and sovereign, it is also unfailing. Unfailing. God will not fail, abandon, or forget his people even in the darkest times. So I ask you, my brother and sister in Christ, how can you know, how can you understand, how can you experience God's faithfulness if you are always spared the dark valleys? You have to go through dark valleys to begin to understand the faithfulness of God. Fourth, God's faithfulness is demonstrable demonstrable. Famine could have destroyed Abraham and his descendants, but God sustained them. Pharaoh could have destroyed Moses and Israel, but God kept them. Likewise, Satan, sin, and the world are and will continue to seek to destroy the church, but God has and will continue to sustain us. He will sustain his church. Rest assured, if the church is still here, is because God is faithful. And finally, God's faithfulness. Can anybody guess the last word? If you guess it, I'm going to be impressed. Eternal, that sounds good. It's true, but it's a name. There's a name. Jesus. God's faithfulness is Jesus. You know what Jesus is? How he, a name that he used for himself? He is the amen. He is the 
amen. Jesus is the amen of God. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said on March 4, 1866, and I quote, Refresh your memories upon the great truth. Our Lord Jesus is superlatively God's amen. What do we say when we say amen? We're saying, let it be so. In Jesus, his incarnation, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his session, and his intercession. In him, God has said his divine, absolute, and final amen to all his promises. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul said, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him, Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And this is what Stephen did before the council. He reminded them that Jesus is God's amen. In him all is and will be fulfilled. He is God's amen because God is faithful. And if in doubt, just remember Jesus. If you ever doubt that God is faithful, remember Jesus. He is God's amen. So, what do we do? We must do what Stephen did. We must always remember. Because we are prone to forget. In his darkest hour, Stephen remembered he remembered God's covenant faithfulness to his people, foreshadowed in the Old Testament, fulfilled supremely in Christ. So we too must always remember, and that's why we're here, to remind ourselves we are a forgetful people. But this must not be so. Brothers and sisters, let us remember God's divine, sovereign, unfailing, demonstrable faithfulness in his Son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is for us. Then who can be against us? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for reminding us once again that you are a God of covenant. And you are faithful to it. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning who are going through various diverse challenges, circumstances that might lead us to doubt your faithfulness. And in those moments, I pray that you will help us all, regardless of our circumstances, to look to the one who is faithful, to your amen, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for those who are going through financial troubles, relational troubles, troubles at work, troubles in the family, difficult circumstances of sadness and sorrow. We pray for the families in Uvalde, Texas. We pray for the people in Ukraine and Russia. We pray for your church around the world that we will be a light, and that in our darkest moments, we will point ourselves and others to Jesus, the greatest, the ultimate, and the supreme manifestation of your faithfulness and your love. 
And so it is in the precious and the strong, the glorious and the powerful name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.